This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Making Friends and Influencing People, The Heroine's Journey in Speculative Fiction. So this week um, is brought to us by Jules, um, <laughs> who very helpfully said, I said, oh, I don't know that much about The Heroine's Journey. And Jules said, don't worry, when you start reading it, you'll realise it's everything you write. And I, and I was like, well, I'm not sure about the, oh. <laughs> <laughs> And that sort of highlights one of the big issues with this, because we talk about the hero's journey, Mm. like it's the only journey there is. And, you know, essentially the heroine's journey and the hero's journey are kind of, they're twins, if you like. Yeah. Um, But the heroine's journey is an inverse of the hero's journey. So um, just to clarify (laughs) from the start, sort of what the hell is the heroine's journey? Mm. um, Isn't it always called the hero's journey, no matter what gender your protagonist is? Um, so t- the second part of that question, yes and no, because the terms <laughs> hero and heroine are used in in the narrative context are, are basically genderless. Yeah. So you know you can have a male heroine, a male protagonist in a heroine's journey, a female protagonist in a hero's journey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Non-binary, any gender identity doesn't matter. It's just there's two ways of categorizing these particular character yeah. arcs. I mean, if you if you look at the hero's journey as well, and and you sort of start to pick on each of the different things you have you know things like uh, you know meeting with the goddess and stuff like that or woman as the temptation again it's not literal it's not meant to be a literal gender thing they're just it's just the names yeah it, it's it's archetypes yeah. if you like um you may well find certainly at the moment although things are gradually rebalancing but you may find that more male characters go on a hero's journey due to more male writers mostly writing male main characters mm-hmm. um, and following that specific narrative arc. Um, you know, Particularly if we're looking outside of speculative fiction and you're looking at things like Clive Cussler or David Patterson or whatever, mm-hmm. it's very much a man following a classic hero's journey. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's worth saying that when we talk about the hero's journey, we are... Today we're going to be talking very much about the narrative structure which is used by writers rather than necessarily the the monomyth as put forward by Joseph Campbell. Um, because the monomyth as put forward by Joseph Campbell is in realistic realistically actually something which is very internal. It's about an emo- it's about the emotional side of things. Um and it's it's a lot more complex, but based on Joseph Campbell's ideas, the hero's journey was born, and the hero's journey as a structure has been used for lots and lots of things, and can obviously also then be applied to a lot of historical things as well, because obviously that was what Joseph Campbell was drawing upon. So it is worth noting that we're not actually talking about the monomyth, we are talking about the hero's journey, which is uh, what for instance, um, Star Wars was entirely based on the hero's journey. The, he, what's his face? Oh, I've forgotten his name. Lucas. We'll, we'll get onto that. Yeah, yeah. A bit in a minute. Yeah, but so so that's basically. I just want to make that 
differentiation that we're not talking about the monomyth. We are talking about the structural hero's journey used as a story plot device. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I'd also like to state that no matter what my personal preferences are on the type of stories I like to read, neither of these particular narrative arcs is more worthy. It's all about how you write them. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I will say that I think it's time we stopped ignoring the existence of the heroine's journey (laughs) because it is absolutely a thing. And the fact that um, it was, I don't know, a few months ago, I went, oh my God, there's a heroine's journey. And I mentioned it to Madeline today and she went, I don't know what that is, (laughs) even though she's been writing it for literally probably a decade. Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that clearly needs to be a little bit more discussed. Yeah. Um, okay, so first off, um, it, there's no point de- describing something based on what it's not. So we're going to describe what the hero's journey is in terms of, you know, a narrative mm-hmm. template, if you like. And then we're going to look at it in comparison to the heroine's journey, which is a different kettle of fish. Yeah. So one of the first things, obviously, with the with the hero's journey is the call to adventure. It's the inciting incident, um, which usually sees, and again, it's usually a male character, but doesn't have to be, but it usually sees the protagonist having to undertake some kind of task. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, this is your classic... <laughs> boy is handed a sword and a destiny kind of thing yeah as madeline was saying about uh, luke skywalker and the fact that he inherits his father's lightsaber um he already was heeding the call to adventure he wanted to go and challenge the empire fight against them join the rebel alliance yeah and then he found out there was a lot more to his heritage than he previously understood yeah um you get this. It's, it's classic King Arthur. It is, but you also again you get this with female characters as well. So Moana is a great uh, example of the hero's journey in that you have Moana. She wants to go out there. She's she's pulled toward the sea, and she's given this. She has to undertake a task in order to save her island from being destroyed. Yeah. There's also usually a point where the hero discovers his own power. I'm going to use the word his. They're essentially genderless terms, but I can't keep going his, hers, theirs yeah. all the way through. So um, I will go with the I'll go with the pronoun of whatever I'm going with at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, discovers his own power, and obviously that will have a bearing on the shaping of the plot. Yes. Um, Sometimes it can be an inheritance. So, for example, with King Arthur discovers actually that he is not the poor adopted son um, of... I've forgotten his name. Uthuk- anyway. Uthuk- oh, 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 no. <laughs> I can remember his brother's um, name, so Kay. Yeah, the brother of Kay. I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah. Um, anyway, it, it's it's gone out of my head. It'll come back about three in the morning as these things do. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, basically, he, he's discovered he's supposed to be the next king of England by blood as well as by, by depending on which myth you're going for, but by honour of the fact that he actually pulled the sword from the stone kind of thing. Exactly. Um, also, you know, you have things like Aragorn, for instance, where it's not necessarily that a power it's not necessarily an inherent power though that's arguable in Aragon um, but you know he discovers power because he finds this dragon egg um, yeah. and thus comes into power in his own way because he, he now has hold of something valuable which then obviously hatches um, so yeah it, it might not be a power which um, they themselves physically have it might not be a magic power um, but it, Essentially, something has been thrust upon them 
um, a responsibility, a power, uh, etc. And most importantly, they've decided to accept it. Yes. The hero is nearly always very active. Yeah. Um, a mentor may appear, but is <laughs> usually, in the end, marginal to the overall final success of the protagonist. Yeah, this is, I think, where very much you get the story of the the mentor dying, which is so popular, which is that you have this mentor who appears, gets them on the right path, but then conveniently dies before they can, um, you know, teach them much, much more, uh, meaning this, the, the hero has to kind of take the last few steps on their own. And that's very much a byproduct of the hero's journey, is the, the killing off of the mentor. <laughs> yeah, you can understand why, because in some senses it's a case of, well, the mentor's training them up for this special purpose. But if the mentor has all these skills, why is the mentor not the one going, yeah, I guess I could just sort that out myself rather than, you know, taking this kid who's barely out of his teens and making yeah. him do it kind of thing. <laughs> um, the other thing that can happen is that the student, the protagonist that is, and mentor have a massive falling out or fundamentally disagree on something. And against the mentor's advice, the student goes off and acts under his own volition. Yeah. So again, Star Wars, very, very classic example of that. In the first film, Obi-Wan Kenobi dies, like halfway through the film. Good job. It's kind of like, I'm your mentor. I've started teaching you about the Force. He has something like one, one five-minute lesson that we actually see, and then it's kind of like, and he's dead. <laughs> well, <laughs> shit. Kind of thing. Which, in the second film, in Empire Strikes Back, means that Luke has to go and seek out a new mentor to really learn. Um, he gets more of a vigorous training process with Yoda but um, then Yoda tells him not to act when his friends are in trouble. Yoda's not actually wrong because Yoda says you're not ready to face Darth Vader yet but Luke goes anyway. Yeah. And it turns out he's not ready to face Darth Vader yet. No, he loses a hand and a fair bit of self-confidence and uh, but you know and, and ultimately Han Solo at that point as well although that's not entirely his fault. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you you get this mentor, but they they're only really there for the beginning, and they might be their presence might sort of remain on the on the you know the protagonist's shoulder a little bit. I mean, you get that with Lord of the Rings as well, and that Gandalf does technically come back and continues to be a character, but for Frodo, but not, with... not for Frodo. Yeah. Who could really have he... used it, to be yeah, honest? Yeah, not the person that he had technically been mentoring. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously. I mean, it's quite well done because there's there's no one else who can face the Balrog. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Gandalf kind of levels up by doing that, which makes him very useful in, in the later book. But at the time, it's devastating because that's one of the massive... That, that's one of the few really strong props that Frodo's got for... Mm in terms of confidence and the idea that he can get to Mordor and get rid of the ring kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. Um, so after that, um, you get the um, the fact that the protagonist will usually make some friends along the way, um, and then as the plot progresses, they become increasingly isolated. 
um, you know, their friends and their loved ones are lost or left behind along the way. Again, Moana's a really good example of this in that when she ultimately goes to face Takar, um, she's on her own. Um, she's left her family behind. Um, she's lost Maui. Uh, she has lost her grandmother, um, though she gets a boost. And that that's a different part of the journey, which we're not going to go into. We've covered the hero's journey before. Um, <laughs> but she's ultimately on her own. And you, you see this a lot in the hero's journey, which is that at the end of the day, it is a lot of the support characters are in the kind of the background doing stuff or are doing different things and the hero has to face the challenge kind of on their own it's same with harry potter when he walks into the into the forest to die on his own you know it's the same <laughs> with moana when she goes to face to car alone um yeah, they, they've lost everything. I mean, to a degree, you also get that, obviously, in, in Lord of the Rings, because they start off with this huge fellowship. Yeah, and it doesn't survive. It doesn't survive, one. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for good reason, obviously. This yeah. isn't a case of Tolkien goes, oh, I've written too many characters, what shall I do? Um, I think I'll have a bomb, which is kind of what Stephen King does in The Stand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is what happens when you don't plot, guys. Unless you're Stephen King, if you don't have some sort of idea where the plot's going, you're going to end up with too many characters and think, oh, fuck, what do I do with all of them? I guess I'm going to have to kill some of them in some sort of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it usually basically means that the character has to be on their own. Um, we'll talk about how that's a little bit different in the heron's journey in a moment. Yeah. Um, okay, in terms of action power agency it's nearly always when i say violent i don't mean they're necessarily clubbing people with swords although they could be um, <laughs> but it's normally an aggressive active uh typically associated with masculine pursuit type of action mm -hmm. so again we've got the boy with a destiny and a sword trope maybe he trains up with a sword honestly this is kind of a court and thorns of roses territory because Whenever S.J. Mass gets a bit stuck, I think she throws in a training montage and the main character, whoever it is at that point, trains up with a sword. And there you go. They are almost all of them on a hero's journey rather than a heroine's journey. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing is that, that it's it's very popular because a lot, well, a lot of people like it and there's something quite satisfying about it in some respects. But at the same time... Um, yeah, it's not it's not the only way, but uh, you know you do tend to get that kind of over aggression when it comes to how things need to be sorted out. So there needs to be a war, there needs to be a big battle, there needs to be a face off which involves lots of magic. And don't get me wrong, I am so down for that, um, but it, it's not the only thing you can do. Yeah, definitely. So um, also. <laughs> the thing which is then tied with that is that the antagonist is usually a great and terrible evil. <laughs> yes, it's not usually just threatening the antag uh, the sorry the, the protagonist and the protagonist's family or loved ones or even a certain part of the city or what have you or even a certain gang. It's usually threatening the entire world. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Um. And and yeah. It. it it's usually meant to have larger a larger sense of consequence. 
Um, what can be interesting is that you can kind of have a two part there, and that you can have two sort of villains, and one is, and one is meant to be the might even be the most concentrated one, and that is right. They are threatening just the family, but there seems to be this need to have this huge overarching threat. Um, which, you know, unless the hero defeats, will destroy all of mankind. And that, again, Moana, good example of this, in that she's there, she's trying to protect her island, but this is something which is going to affect the entire world. This decay and stuff like that is going to spread. Yeah, definitely. And it again, it's Harry Potter, isn't it? Mm. Because Voldemort's not kind of like, yes, I'm going to conquer Hogwarts and stop there. <laughs> This is all I wanted. I just wanted to be a teacher here. <laughs> circle this little bit of... You know, they kept turning me down for Defence Against the Dark Arts and I'm not having it anymore. I'm going to circle this bit of Scotland and this is mine now. Exactly. There should be only one house. <laughs> um, and the final thing is that the antagonist, uh, the hero will finally defeat the antagonist and succeed, but do so alone. So in the final showdown, he will be alone. Now this is a really interesting one, and again, it's something which has re- which has really been warped from the original concept of the monomyth and the idea of it. Because obviously, the hero's journey it's meant to be a single person's journey, and when they are facing the, their great evil or their basically their great challenge, it is meant to be highly personal for them. But at the same time, that has been translated to they can be the only one facing this this big challenge, <laughs> rather than it can be massively internal for them, but it can be a group thing. Um, yeah. And I think... There must to, be one undisputed champion. It's Highlander. It's like there can be only one. There can, yeah. And to, to be honest, at the same time, you can understand people getting quite frustrated with when that, when that doesn't happen, when you have this big build-up of someone who definitely wants to defeat someone um, and then they don't deal the finishing blow. Um, I mean, just think about how angry people were when Aya Stark killed the Night King um, and not Jon Snow. Yeah, I, you know what? I'm gonna. We've got a little section on Captain Marvel later, and I'm going to bring Arya Stark in on that because I think this is a misunderstanding and this is why we should talk about the heroine's journey more. Yeah. But yeah, the, the sort of anger is very, very similar and... Um, it's uh, it's definitely something that we, we can explore in a bit more detail. Yeah. So anyway, that's sort of uh, basically a very potted version of the narrative structure of a you know the template of the hero's journey. Yes, um, and he- we have done episodes of, on it before. So if you really do need to kind of have a, a more in depth exploration, <laughs> you can you can find those. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, the heroine's journey, as we've said, is an inverse of that. But going into more detail. The heroine may start off alone and unsure, but at the inciting incident, decides to take action. Mm-hmm. So that's not too different from the start. Um, she discovers the limits of her own power. So it's not, she might actually know that she's already got an ability. Yeah. Um, she doesn't know necessarily how strong it's going to be or how integral it's going to be to her succeeding in what she decides to do. But... Um, you might also get a sense of fear of of that power, a sense of I cannot control it, um, I I don't understand it, and or I don't even accept it. Yeah, 
yeah, there can definitely be that. Um, usually at some point in the narrative, it will lead to her understanding that she needs to fight smarter, not harder. Yes. Because there will be very definite limits. So we're not talking Richard Rull in Terry Goodkind's series, Sword of Truth, where Richard just sort of has no power whatsoever until this sort of deus machina type scenario where he'll just stand in front him Richard Rall basically being a war wizard means that he can't use his power for anything useful but if an army turns up he can just stand in the path and blast them to shards of bone (laughs) but only at the end of the book yeah (laughs) so it's not that it's absolutely not that it's about learning to uh, combine if you like yeah um uh, I do like that <laughs> smarter not harder. Um the other thing is that the mentor character um will usually become like family. Now I should point out that that can also be the case in the hero's journey, but as I said in the hero's journey usually it's you're like family to me. Oh, you're dead. Whoops. <laughs> The mentor usually survives in the heroine's journey, is <laughs> yes. what I'm getting at. Weirdly enough, I do want to give a, an example of this, which is that I've been watching, re-watching uh, My Hero Academia recently um, in preparation for the fifth season. And without hoping, without giving too many spoilers, there is a character in it who, it, who is the mentor character, All Might. And he... Um, he was basically all set up to die. Like, 100%, he's literally all set up to die. And I love this character so much, and I was so worried about it, because I, because it, it seemed to be following a typical hero's journey initially. Boy comes into power, boy starts on journey, etc. Boy has mentor. And I was like, and now mentor is going to die. But then he didn't. And he can consi- he's still alive. I was sure he would be dead by the end of season one, but no, we're on season five. <laughs> he is still alive. And so far as I know in the manga, he is still alive. And I'm so happy. Um, and when I was reading through the, the heroine's journey, I was suddenly like, holy shit, My Hero Academia is actually a heroine's journey, not a yeah. hero's journey. Um, and I think that's also why it's worked so well um, in that you actually get a mentor who survives, um, who continues to encourage the hero and who acts as not just a step for them to get up, but continues to be a supporting character, but also has their own agency beyond that. Definitely. Um, Giles in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for example, Mm. as well. Yeah. Who very much has agency in his own right. And Buffy exceeds him in the end, as the student should always exceed the master. Yes. Um, but he's still a really important support and connection in her life. Mm-hmm. And a very big part of why she becomes the successful slayer that she does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's the thing, is that... The- it's the fact that the mentor and the hero's journey is very much the mentor and the hero's journey is at the end of their life usually they've kind of they've they've reached the top and they've got no further to go um rather than it being the idea that the mentor is actually a person themselves and that the mentor can also be going on their own journey or can still be on their own journey too yeah um which may actually divide which may take them in a slightly different direction to the protagonist but they they are still 
entwined with the protagonist. It's basically the ultimate found family trope. Yeah, which, as we're getting on to, yes. um, in the heroine's journey, the heroine networks her way through the story, even if she doesn't mean to. <laughs> so she spends the entire journey building friendships and allyships and even frenemyships. Mm. So yeah, um, sometimes there's a romantic component, sometimes there isn't, but a lot of it comes down to being able to make these connections with people. Um, we just talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but... They they even quite boldly stay, state at one point um, in season six that the reason Buffy has managed to hang on so long because Slayers don't live a long time. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that they tend to get called at about 15 and then perhaps live a couple of years. Not many Slayers make it to 18 for the big, the big trial um, where they have their powers stripped temporarily and then get pitted against something to see if they're intelligent enough to survive. <laughs> Nice. But, yeah, it's really great, really, considering that basically these girls have been cursed with this sort of demon power. Um, But it's, it's, you know, Buffy gets injured by a vampire and she's kind of like, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. I'm in the best shape of my life. It was an ordinary vampire. He was just, he just got there before me. I don't get it. So she starts talking to Spike, who has killed two slayers, Mm -hmm. and Spike treats it like a date, which is very disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) And... He's like, you know, part of it is that all Slayers have a death wish. They, they're they living with this huge sword of Damocles over their head and they want to know when it's going to be over. The other thing is most Slayers, unlike Buffy, are reared, in, reared by the Watcher's Council separately. They don't have friends and family. They just have instructions. They just have their one Watcher, their mentor. Yeah. And that mentor is not allowed to form a familial type bond with the Slayer at all. Yeah. And Which sounds healthy. The, yeah, they're kept isolated. I mean, if you read any of the books, it's sort of in, you get this in the backstory. And Spike's like, the reason that you've hung on so long is you've got things tying you to life. So your death wish, your wish for it to be over, hasn't taken hasn't taken you yet, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, this is also weirdly enough. I think this also plays into the idea of this the, the myth of survival of the fittest. Which mm-hmm. is that there's that idea of survival of the fittest, which was again became very, very popular with you know toxic masculinity um, around the time that the hero's journey became very popular um, in fiction, it, it sort of being used very purposefully in fiction. Again, not talking about the monomyth. Um, and now there's this kind of this better fundamental understanding that survival of the fittest for humans actually meant being social creatures. <laughs> not yeah. whoever happened to be the strongest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is definitely a misappropriation of Darwinian theory, which, you know, very with a cold scientific eye, Darwinian theory is just like, if you're strong enough in order to pass your genes on, then your species will survive through your genetic lines, yeah. ultimately. That's that's basically what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, but this idea that if you are the nastiest bastard in the jungle, then you've got more chance of surviving... It's kind of a species indeterminate thing. And with things like bonobos, even chimps, and humans specifically, gorillas, you know, the higher primates, um, a lot of it is actually about cooperation. Yes. Yeah. Um, because you could be a you could be a tough old bastard, but if you're on your own, then actually your chances of survival start to get kind of slim. Well, if you're on your own, your chances of passing your genetic 
structure onto somebody else is very, very slim. Very, very, very slim, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's that to think about. Um, but it's... Yeah, with the heroine's journey, it is it is more about that, that sense of teamwork. And again, that doesn't mean that the heroine loses any kind of agency or power or anything like that. Once again, My Hero Academia is a great example of it because it's it's an ensemble piece. Um weirdly enough, so is Star Trek. Uh you you have you have Midoriya, main character, he's the inheritor of this great power. Um but it's not just his story. It's the story of him and his entire class who were all improving and working together and inspiring each other. Um, and through that, they are able to take the next steps forward. So a lot of people, I think, think, oh, if it's an ensemble piece in that way, it'll be boring. Um, and we have several examples tried and tested which show that it isn't. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so the heroine is excellent at matching strengths and weaknesses, outsourcing tasks to those best suited to them. I actually think that in many ways the heroine's journey is more satisfying to write and more satisfying to read because you can, as Madeline has said, have this wonderful extended cast of people who've each got their own special little skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It, you know, the the reason I think I got through as, as far with the Game of Thrones books as I did was I wasn't just stuck in, say, Cersei's point of view or Jamie's point of view. Yeah, so I got to read, you know, Jon Snow's point of view or Sam's point of view or Arya's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Game of Thrones isn't necessarily a great heroine's journey. It's a mixture of the things. Yeah. But this idea that, you know, we've talked before about how sometimes the side characters draw us in. Um, things like Six of Crows. Six of Crows is a great example yeah, of the heroine's journey. I was just thinking that. Six Six of Crows. If you think weirdly enough of Six of Crows Six of Crows as as Kaz Brecker's heroine's journey, it's actually really funny. <laughs> Kaz Brecker, who's the thing the Kaz Brecker has one thing going for him really, and that's the fact that first of all he's a clever bastard, but he's also a mean old bastard. Um, and those those are the two things that Cass does right. He's clever and he's mean. <laughs> and though yeah. that's his skill set. <laughs> so yeah, he needs all of the others in order to achieve his goals. Yeah, definitely. Um, so which brings us to our final point in the heroine's journey is that she works with the team to achieve victory together. Yeah. Um, her internal struggle might be intensely personal and it might be reflected in an external struggle. Yeah. It may not be an external struggle at all, depending on what the genre is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real sense of change comes from a change inside the main character herself. And that is achieved with the presence of other people. Yes. And again, you can also within you know that ensemble that that final achieved victory together have small moments with each of the characters overcoming something which is personal to them internal and external often the external is used obviously as a metaphor for what's going on internally so it's not basically about saying and they all deliver the the punch at the same time together <laughs> that's not necessarily what's happening <laughs> Now I'm thinking of Captain Planet. Um, sorry. <laughs> of course, yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, so uh, if we drill down into these differences a little bit. Okay, so number one is purpose. So a hero is concerned with defeating an enemy or retrieving an object of importance. So defeat the dragon, rescue the princess, return the heart of Tefiti, um, and to win glory. Or basically, yeah, to, to achieve their, their ultimate goal. Yeah. Whereas uh, the heroine's purpose is trying to reunite with someone who was taken from her. This is a very loose way of saying that she's looking for something within herself that's missing. There's a reason she does all that networking with people and why she builds so many friendships and allyships. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the person that she's been taken from her is actually dead. She's never going to get them back. And she's actually looking for that missing piece of herself. Her goal, acknowledged or otherwise, is to find and build family. Yeah. Again, Kaz Brecker, excellent example. If you asked him, if, is he trying to build a family, he would probably <laughs> stab you in the eye. But that is essentially what he's trying to do. He is trying to fill in the gap which has been left by his brother's death um, and basically make peace within that. Um, and part of that is also the healing journey. And he does need other people um even if he only starts to acknowledge that he he needs Inej, he, he does need other people. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, the second one is the approach. The second thing that they can differ on. Um, a hero's approach is, is pretty much to go on the offensive most of the time. He pursues his goal actively and will kill or trick his way to victory. So we say trick, you know, think of uh, things like Odysseus, for example. Mm. He's very sort of... Tricksy. Well, he's certainly tricksy, but he's sort of very eyes on the prize, focused on the goal, and doesn't really care about anyone around him. As evidenced by the fact that he's the only one who makes it back. Yeah, it's sort of like, well, I don't know what's happening to the rest of you, but I'm surviving. <laughs> by any means, per- any means possible. Any means. <laughs> any means. I'm willing to sacrifice every last one of you. I'll be sad, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> Meanwhile, the heroine um, achieves her goals through communication and information gathering. She's a builder, a general, but not necessarily a conqueror. In other words, she basically sees and values skills in others and delegates because the victory is not about personal glory or ego. Again, that doesn't mean that she can't achieve personal glory or that she doesn't have ego. It's that there's a wider picture and she sees the wider picture. Yeah, definitely. Again, looking at you, Kaz Brecker. <laughs> yes, the, the ultimate heroine, Kaz Brecker. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, I think there are others as well. I mean, I could mention most Tamora Pierce characters, main characters, are in fact, you know, on a heroine's journey. Mm-hmm. And some of them start off from the position of, I don't really like people and I don't want them around me. And then sort of grudgingly, they, they're sort of like, well, I feel responsible for you now, so I guess you're under my protection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's just occurred to me that Gregory Maudsley is on a heroine's journey. He's <laughs> So I think, yeah, it's very important to remember that, when, again, when we're talking about heroine's journey, even if we are talking about a woman, that doesn't mean that she's all sort of outsourcing nice, sweet, kind, you know, or generous. She can be a real bastard just as much. Um, yeah. In fact, she could she can almost be villainous 
as in some respects as again Kaz Brecker quite villainous she can be gruff um, and not particularly friendly as is the case with Gregory but yeah yeah definitely so the next one is strength um, the hero must eventually go it alone as we've said um, the journey often climaxes in a one-to-one defeat of his enemy um Asking for or needing help is a sign of weakness here. Others must be protected rather than involved. He usually has to strip away friends and family to succeed, and only then is he allowed to approach being human again. It's it's very much this, only you can take this last step. And again, it's this massive misunderstanding of the monomyth, which was essentially, no one else can save you from yourself. No one else can make your emotional journey for you. Um, which has then been translated to no one else can go and fight the big boss, even though it would make total logical sense for us all to band together to do it. Yeah, this is like this. Yeah, this this is Thanos kind of thing in any vague fantasy novel that's generally male written and male led, and it's like, ah, well, we have a team of nine people. We could all go in, and we might have like about twenty five percent chance. And the hero's like, no, 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 this is my fight. It must be a two percent chance. We've got to have the drama. Think of the viewers. What the hell are you talking about? Um, but there is a little bit of... Sometimes there's a bit of ego involved as well. So we re-watched Miss Sloan recently, which has the fabulous Jessica, Jessica Chastain in it. And mm-hmm. the character of Miss Sloan is... She's a lobbyist who is trying to get a certain... You know, the Heaton harris bill, I think it is, passed on gun control in America. Um, mm-hmm. And without going into too much many details and things she plays a blinder of a game in order to reveal the corruption behind the system because the system itself is broken and there is nothing and no one she will not sacrifice along the way because she Mm -hmm. wants to win she ends up going to prison for what you know for this kind of a technicality um at the very end of the film so spoiler there guys sorry about that but it's a great journey to get there anyway but she is very much on a hero's journey she ends up alone yeah Yeah. um whereas Um, the heroine in terms of strength mm -hmm. shows strength by learning to request aid when she needs it it doesn't diminish her own power to receive assistance from other people um the more companions and the more network she has the stronger she is it's not about her, just her own raw ability. Her humanity, rather than the abandonment of it, is her strength. The heroine may also be put in a position where she's alone, not out of choice. And I think, again, that's something which also defines the hero's journey, is that ultimately the hero will be alone out of a, a certain level of choice. Yes. Either by the actions they've made, which has meant that people have had to be left behind... Um, or because they've run on ahead, or something along those lines. But there will be a level of choice there. Again, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there there is one point when it's just her on her own. Um, But I would still say that Buffy's journey is still very much a heroine's journey than a hero's journey. Particularly if you look at all seven seasons, and by the end of the seventh season, it's kind of, she's learned that the best thing to do is share the power she was given. So she's very much not alone. And, you know, she yeah. never even gets a final line. They say, Buffy, what are, you, what are we going to do next? And she just smiles because she realises she's not the only Slayer anymore. Yeah, exactly. Okay. 
Uh, so the, the fourth point in terms of where the hero and heroine can dif differ is power. Um, a hero is at his most powerful when alone because his quest is one of self-reliance and solitary achievement against the odds. His iconic moments are those of physical or intellectual superiority. So again, you're thinking of your 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 classical heroes. You're thinking of basically a, a lot of the sword and sorcery type fantasy, which has a male lead. You're thinking of Conan the Barbarian. The, the final fight will nearly always feature the hero by himself, showing that he's... Yeah that that last little bit of training will click into place for him. Yeah, and, absolutely. And his wins along the way will be, you know, uh, will, will be things like, um, you know, you manage to, to win a game of dice by being cleverer or you manage to out outsmart somebody or beat someone else in a fight. It, it'll all be something very sort of physical. Yeah. Whereas the heroine is at her strongest with others around her. You know, her quest is about learning to build strong teams and friend groups, characterised by intense communications um, and unity, ultimately. Her iconic moments happen with others, and while she may demonstrate superiority in one way or another, it won't detract from the ways that others are superior to her. There's also, again, that nice moment where she might very well... Well, she has to acknowledge where others are stronger than her. She might be jealous in some respects, but she will acknowledge it. Um, and she will be able to use it and outsource. Again, My Hero Academia, great example in the, in the fact that the character Midoriya, um, he, his, the first thing that defines him is that he's analytical and that he likes looking at how other people's powers work and what they can do. He then actually incorporates a lot of what they can do into his own learning. He's like, right, she does that. How um, She's really good at that. I'm going to copy her, or I'm going to basically watch her um, and learn from her, um, whilst also recognising that some people can do things that he can't, and he figures out very quickly how to use each of those skills appropriately and how to work as a team um so that's a really really good example again midoriya the ultimate heroine uh kaz Brecker, the ultimate heroine yeah i mean uh tamora pierce's collateral of Mindelin books as well um all the way through kel is kind of gathering a group of friends friends that start off quite hostile to her because she is the only girl this i mean uh, yeah. To be fair, these books were written in the 90s, so this wasn't kind of like a, the token girl, the only girl. And Kaladri makes lots of female friends and female warrior friends along the way as well. But when you get to the final book, when she's basically sent on a mission by kind of the gods um, to stop something which is considered really chaotic and unnatural, um, she does go off by herself because she's literally going against her oath as a knight and... Uh, the penalty for that is uh, a really grisly death on Traitor's Hill. Um, but all the friends she's made amongst her fellow knights, the, the boys that she sort of came up with, yeah. this, this team of boys turns up on horseback and like, okay, Kel, where are we going? It's kind of like, you're our, you're our acknowledged <laughs> leader because we know that you've got a really good head for strategy. And she has no magic or anything. She's a pretty good warrior. Um, and she's tall, which definitely helps. <laughs> she ends up in a fight with someone about seven feet tall. Um, but 
that her her thing is that she's good at seeing other people's strengths and weaknesses and utilizing them. So she actually succeeds because she places everyone to best advantage. Yeah, it's it's basically like the chess player, yes. essentially. Rather than the one piece, it's it's the person who can manipulate all the other pieces, which weirdly enough um, is often put to. The villains in the hero's journey, it's often the villain who can do that. It's often the villain who ends up outsourcing different things. Um, And this is seen as villainous. It's like, oh, he won't fight me himself. No, because he recognises that he himself is not enough. But he can outwit you, so he's using other people who are physically stronger than him to fight you. And thats it's often portrayed as being very villainous. Yeah, or sort of dishonourable or cowardly or whatever. Come out and fight me yourself. I'm not stupid. I'm like seven and a half stones soaking wet. I'm not going to fight Superman kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's your one this time. (laughs) Sorry. That's just... (laughs) I'm just laughing. Sorry. So, finally, the ending... The hero, um, as self-isolated as he is, will probably have sacrificed too much for his goal. His end will probably be bittersweet. He may be depicted alone, he may have grown too powerful to fit back in the world he left behind, or is now too solitary to ever fit in a group again. Um, This is typified by poignancy of, you know, lonely death, drinking, hermitage... (laughs) Again, this is <laughs> this is again something which has been plucked and kind of I'm not going to say misappropriated, but has evolved from the concept of uh, refusal refusal to return within the monomyth, where the hero has reached a certain point where they actually kind of don't want to go back to their to their normal world, um, and this has kind of almost been the they they've achieved s- such heights or they've lost so much that they can't return now um it's just they just can't ever fit back into society um and sometimes they do return but it doesn't quite work i think it's a lot of people also got very pissed off in in star wars in that you had luke skywalker who was meant to be this hopeful optimistic character who had genuine compassion and then he returns in the the latest series and he's this old barbarous finicky you know but old bastard really um and everyone kind of felt quite betrayed by that i liked it i felt that did you like I, it i liked it I, I mean you don't know how he's got there and once it's revealed it kind of makes sense um because he was very very young when he was cast in the mentor role that was the problem he hadn't really had the benefit of a mentor for you know, well into his sort of late 20s and even the support as he started is... I mean, if you think of yourself as a karate instructor, for example, you're a black belt, you're allowed to now teach or whatever, um, but you don't do it in isolation. You don't do it without a big karate federation behind you or without a senior instructor that you can call upon. And it's kind of like that. So he fails and he fails in quite a big way and he fails a student that, you know, that he's related to. And I think him going into hermitage sort of retreating from that failure kind of works for his character arc um i think if people just wanted him to be sort of this this badass hero that he'd been rather than sort of like yeah he succeeded against the emperor and then when he went on in his own his own journey when he became the mentor he failed um 
I think it's a little bit short-sighted, but, you know, everyone's got their own interpretation of me. Yeah. I think, I think it also comes to the fact that there seems to be this thing, particularly with Disney, where they, they do not allow um, characters who grow up and become parents to be good parents. <laughs> or, or mental figures or things like that. For some reason, they, they always kind of want to twist them as they get well, older. Well, I think the thing is, even the best parents will fail, and they will fail their children epically. They may not mean to, but they will do it, and they will do something that will really screw that child up. And, you know, the degree to how bad it is, is the degree to how much they're willing to admit that they're not infallible and that they they made a mistake. Yeah. So anyway, that that's a big part of the hero's journey um, is the kind of being changed beyond what you can then sort of deal with. And again, it's not always the case, but there's always the kind of I've been marked. Yeah. Um, and I think a, a good example of that, in just as much as this um, Six of Crows is a hero's journey, uh, sorry, is a heroine's journey, the Grisha series that, that comes before it, Shadow and Bone and stuff, very much feels like a hero's journey. And you definitely get that with um, the, 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 the main characters, whose names I've just forgotten. <laughs> um, Mal and... Oh, what's her name? Alyssa? I thought it was Al- Alana. I thought Alana. it was Alina, but, you know, I could be wrong. No, I think it's Alana. Um, um, Alina. Alana, uh, something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm really bad. Um, definitely at the end of their journey, um, they have, they've kind of been changed. And they, they still get happy ever after, but it's bittersweet. Yeah, I mean, it's also Frodo, isn't it, going into the West with the yeah. elves, and it's also the character from the Hurt Locker finally getting out of the war zone and is like, I can't deal with this. This My life doesn't have any meaning, and then going back in as soon as he can with his marriage yeah. and smoking ruins behind him. Yeah. So um, as, as opposed to all this, obviously the heroine's ending, she's learned to let others in and rely on them too. Her victory is usually a shared mm-hmm. victory, so she tends to end the journey surrounded by loved ones with the promise of future safety ahead. <laughs> Hooray! Um, her, you know, her ending can also be bittersweet because sometimes the heroine loses someone really important along the way or she never really recovers something that she lost. But she learns to mm. sort of move around that pain rather than letting it define her and going into hermitage like Luke Skywalker did. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and you can also sometimes have the, at the end of the journey, in in the heroine's journey, the family that she has created do start going their separate ways, because the journey's finished. They're still they still love each other, um, they are still bound together by what's happened, but they are each going their separate ways. Again, Six of Crows, great example of this, um, where they are still all connected, but. You know, Inej is going to get on her ship. She's going to go out hunting pirates um, and slavers. Good for you, Inej. Um, you know, Wylan and Jasper are basically taking over the sort of the business um, without giving too many spoilers in that regard. Uh, Nina is obviously going back with the other Grisha and Matthias. Oh, don't talk about that. We're not talking about Matthias. No. Um, <laughs> 
So, so obviously, um, they, they kind of, they're all going their separate ways, but something has been created which will not be forgotten. Yeah. Um, and if, if a call comes, there's that sense that if the call comes, they will come back for one another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you get that in Stephen King's It as well, which, you know, ironically, they make the promise the last time all seven children are together. And, you know, if it ever comes back, we need to promise that we'll come back here and fight it again kind of thing. And then because yeah. they, their lives sort of disperse from there and at least six of them all sort of move away and become successful at something else, they forget their childhoods. Mm. They forget what they did until the call comes yeah. and says, it's back kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously, I'm talking about the book, yeah. not that awful adaptation <laughs> that was put out <laughs> recently. <laughs> not okay with that. Okay, so the point of this comparison is not to get people thinking in a binary state about narrative. Um, so we need to move... These are polarities, okay? So when you say mm. male and female, when you say um, heroine and hero, in this context, they're polarities. And there are shades and shades and shades of meaning in between. Um, mm -hmm. So while we start in that position, very few stories are just one or the other. You may have side characters who are on a hero's journey in a heroine's journey story. Um, yeah. And as long as they're subplots and they're not overshadowing the main arc, it doesn't matter. You may have a main character who actually switches back and forth, particularly if it's a series of books. I think Harry Dresden yes. does this a little bit. I mean, he's mostly on a hero's journey, but every so often he throws you a book where you're kind of like, this is a heroine's journey. You're actually bringing people together. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um and I think that that is also something you need to be thinking of if you are writing a series, because if if every book is a hero's journey, first of all, again, if putting aside Joseph Campbell's whole idea, um, you, your poor character is going through too much, too much, if they're just constantly on a hero's journey. Every book, they just complete one hero's journey and then have to start it again. You're going to quickly find that there's nowhere else for them to go. Yeah, it, it so would become kind of varying it up a bit. As a reader, that would become boring because you start to feel that the author is just painting by numbers. And maybe what you want yeah. is the next instalment of something. That's certainly how I feel about, you know, the Shannon Maguire's October Day series. But if she didn't mm. throw me a couple of books in that series where October is very clearly on a heroine's journey, um, <laughs> rather than sort of like, well, I'm I'm a knight errant and I solve these problems kind of thing, uh, it, it would be a real issue for me. I would lose interest. And I have to say, yeah. I actually prefer her. I never thought I'd say this, but I prefer her encrypted series simply because you get a couple of books from one character's point of view. Then you move on to another character but all of mm. them seem to be the heroine's journey because the whole thing is about, you know, the main character of that series is the, the Price Healy family, these monster hunters. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. So, yeah, it's, it's again, it's very... It's good to know the extremes on either side, but don't think that it's one or the other. Definitely. This, this is about knowing your options and how to sport... How to sport? How to... Support, I apparently can't speak, how to spot the broad brushstrokes um, so you can more fully understand what you're writing. If you don't understand what you're writing, then you might want to stop and have a good think about it. Yeah. You want your narrative to be engaging, so you need to know what you're trying to put out there. Yeah. So the next thing is origins. Um, 
So again, these journeys have their origins in classical myth. Perseus, Theseus, Heracles, and again, the concept of the hero's journey. Obviously, Joseph Campbell, the monomyth, um, he wasn't writing it as this is the story structure for writers to use. That was kind of taken away from it. It was more an exploration of the common factors within these within these stories, which is why um, you can find the hero's journey in, or, or the heroine's journey in the kind of in ancient Greek mythology. Um, however, this is the thing: is that people don't tend to think about the heroine's journey in Greek mythology, but it does exist, um, and people don't tend to think about it because, again, the whole concept of the hero's journey comes from Joseph Campbell, who was focusing on a very particular angle with the myths, which is the angle which was usually given to us. Again, considering especially with the with some certain myths, there was a patriarchal pull which contributed to that. But the heroine's journey is present, um, and you can usually find it tucked in to the hero's journey. Yeah, definitely. So for every Perseus, there's Andromeda gathering her court and influence. Let's remember that Andromeda was going to be the queen. Perseus was going to be her consort. I know they changed mm. the, the emphasis on this later on, and then the Victorians probably changed it again. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the Victorians. Um, but, you know, Andromeda actually had agency and was playing her own game. Um, mm. For every Theseus, there's an Ariadne. Uh, it, it's kind of mean what Theseus does to Ariadne, but Ariadne is the one who makes the choice to help him so he'll survive the labyrinth. Um, yeah. And just because the focus is on male-led heroes' journeys, it hasn't stopped the heroine's journey from existence. Um, my favourite yeah. is the original Persephone myth, which... You know, it's not about her being abducted and raped by Hades. It's about her her being bored and unsure of her place in the world and descending into the underworld, deciding she likes it, networking with with the dead, and then informing Hades she's going to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> that is heroine's journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can also in some ways see it with Medea. Yeah. Um, uh, with um, Jason. Yeah. Jason and the Argonauts, um, you have that with Medea, uh, who, again, goes a bit crazy. The <laughs> That's the thing with these myths, though, is that, you know, they, they sort of continue on. So if you look at them within arcs, you find heroes' journeys and then and heroines' journeys, and then they sort of go off on one. Medea certainly sort of loses her rag a tiny bit and commits just a tiny bit of infanticide. Um, and by tiny, I mean a lot. She kills all of the children she had by Jason. It gets quite violent, but she very much it very much feels to her to to me like her journey along with Jason and the Argonauts is a heroine's journey. Definitely. Um, we're gonna sort of head towards wrapping up territory, but we've got a couple more points to go. Just want to mention Captain Marvel. And um, when the film came mm. out. We talked about this at the time, but there was a lot of grumbling about the film because it did something different to a lot of the other Marvel superhero films. The story arc and the character journey was more internal. It was more focused, again, on forming these connections and relationships with people. And it was more about realising that you can choose to not use power or you can choose to... It's There's a lovely bit towards the end of Captain Marvel where she's she's finally facing the person who has been betraying her all along 
Um, mm-hmm. And he's kind of like, yeah, come on, fight me, fight me. No, you can't do it if you if you lose your temper kind of thing. She's like, actually, no, my emotions kind of give me strength. Embracing all of myself makes me a lot stronger. I don't need to fight yeah. you to prove anything. <laughs> yeah, I do like the fact he's just there like, don't use your powers. Show me that you really can fight now. Um, like he's egging her on like he's a teacher. And she's like, bitch. <laughs> she just bitch slaps him with all of her full power because she's like I don't you know this is actually part of me I don't need to prove myself to you um, on your terms in order to make myself smaller so that I can fight you on equal terms I'm above you I think you know the cynical part of me is kind of like that there are a lot of mostly men out there who feel that uh, the superhero stories which let's face it have their origins in in greek myth and and various other things belong exclusively to men and the comic books and things were designed for men and therefore the characters and everything should be geared towards a male audience by which we mean kind of the more heroes narrative heroes journey narrative arc um and they didn't really like seeing what effectively was a heroine's journey um, but on, you know, to be fair, there are lots of people who are kind of like, no, this is absolutely awesome. This is a different type of superhero film. We want more like this. And they don't realize they've actually been spoon fed some of the heroine's journey before and things like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is absolutely the most heroine's journey film of all. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> to be honest, things like Thor Ragnarok, again, that's kind of a heroine's journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. It, it's an ensemble piece. Yeah. Um, the whole Guardians of the Galaxy thing is that Peter Quill would not have survived um, without all of the others holding his hand as yeah. well. You know, at the end there, they all had to do it together. It was an awesome moment, and in no way was his victory or his his again. You see the very personal side of it, which was the that internalized shame and 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 sadness he had regarding his mother. Just in the fact that Gamora was asking him to take her hand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was just, it was, it came together so well. So yes, you can mm. absolutely have your pyrotechnics and your violent bright colours and your really big, hard showdowns kind of thing. You can have your Iron Man and Captain America type battles. Um, yeah. But there's nothing wrong with you know occasionally having a slightly more reflective film that shows that. You know, networking and teamwork and a, a non-bittersweet ending where people are kind of like, yeah, I suffered a little bit through that, but you know what? I'm better for coming out on the other side. And you know, yeah. th- there's love and friendship. I mean, that's what the Avengers films is, sort of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think they did that very well. I think they tried to do several different heroes' journeys in a lot of those. Yeah, rather, rather than, than putting it, pulling it yeah, together. It, it, they don't quite work in the same way that, say, Guardians of the Galaxy does as, as an ensemble piece, in my opinion. Um, which brings me very quickly and randomly to Arya Stark, as Madeline mentioned earlier. Um, mm. Again, much grumbling that Arya Stark took out the Night King, despite the fact that it had been foreshadowed since the start. <laughs> Everyone seemed to think, oh, it should have been Jon Snow. Um, no, that wasn't the purpose of Jon Snow at all. <laughs> yeah. Again, I can understand it, and I feel like Jon Snow was badly used at the end, particularly mostly because of the way the whole way Daenerys went with the end and and kind of Jon Snow's final purpose. His his randomly just stabbing her at the end there felt 
very weird and out of character. It didn't for me because um, he's always been duty first and handing power back. He didn't want it. Yeah, but no, but that's what I mean. Sorry, I don't mean it like that. I mean the way that he that that it occurred. Um, I felt like there should have been more of a sense of uprising and pushing against her. Him holding the woman, you know, he supposedly has fallen in love with in his arms and stabbing her didn't sit right with me at all. I think that that was um, a problem of length of series, wasn't it, as much? As yeah, no, else. I, yeah, and, to, and, and that's that's what I'm acknowledging. I didn't have a problem with him ultimately killing her, but the way that it was done, I think, was was poorly done. And if it had been done properly, I think a lot of people would have felt less betrayed by it because Jon Snow had obviously been built up a lot and we never really got to see him doing what he did best and what Jon Snow did best was pulling people together. Jon Snow was on a, a sort of a, a heroine's journey, a heroine's which journey is, all the way through that series. The, all the way through, yeah. Um, and we just didn't really get to see that to full effect in yeah, the it, end, which is why I would have much rather seen him pulling together an army to defeat Daenerys. You needed another two series, so you had the rise of the Mad Queen kind of thing, and Jon Snow gradually yeah. sort of moving away from the whole thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would have structured it completely differently, but obviously I wasn't in charge. <laughs> No. <laughs> so but yeah, um, Ar- Arya so, was yeah. oddly more on a hero's journey for a lot of her arc. Yeah, because she did. She ended up sort of stripping things away, and then by the end, she she's not really fit to stay. But ultimately, that is what she wanted. But yeah, she's definitely not an ensemble girl. No, she isn't. Okay, so just a quick look at some of our favourite heroines journeys in books and films because we've definitely talked about our favourite heroes journeys before yes so obviously Casbrecker comes uh, as I said I've <laughs> talked, of, talked about it plenty of times Six there. of Crows guys um, by the way there's a series out coming soon in I think April <gasps> no! Shadow and Bone I'm so excited <laughs> yeah so Shadow and Bone this is going to be good because it's going to be Shadow and Bone which is going to be which ultimately ends up being a sort of a hero's journey, though it's sort of it's sort of it, it does a, a good mix, to be honest. Um, and then um, it's Alina, that's what her name yeah. is, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, but, and then Six of Crows, um, and obviously the uh, the the dregs lot who are all you know very much on a heroine's journey so um, i'm really looking forward to that but i think also and i've been gushing about it this whole episode i'm i'm really in love with my hero academia at the moment cool and i think it's (laughs) there's a, a running joke which is that it's green naruto um and i don't feel like that's the case at all uh, because, um, and uh, Naruto has got a special place in my heart because it's Naruto, you know, like that's that's my childhood, man. Um, that that's like my childhood anime, my first foray <laughs> into anime. <laughs> Can't ignore that. Um, but My Hero Academia is a beautiful heroine's journey because it starts off looking like it's going to be a hero's journey and it's still deeply personal but the fact that it feels very much like an ensemble piece and the fact that actually throughout the series you get to know every single person in Midoriya's class 
Um, and they're all interesting, except for that one dude, but we're not going to talk about him <laughs> because he's obsolete. And I think everybody that, like, it's this running joke was like, if you had to kill one cl- one person from Midoriya's class in My Hero Academia, who would it be? And why Minata? Um, is, is, is the joke because everybody hates him. He's just the obligatory perv. Um, so we'll just put him to the side, but everybody else, it, it, they just seem to have this great sense of character, the great, great sense of ensemble coming together, pushing each other, admiring each other, growing together. And rather than it being right, we need this new symbol of peace in one solitary person, it becomes, we need a new generation who are going to be the symbol of peace, who it's not down to one person anymore. It's down to all of them to be the kind of people that inspire others. And I really, really like that. It's probably one of my favourite at the moment. Also notwithstanding, obviously, Harker and Blackthorn, but I can't really talk about Harker and Blackthorn on account of the fact that it's not been published yet. I will mention that in a moment. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, I think I've enjoyed pretty much any of... Tamora Pierce's um, main characters actually because I think as I've said they're almost even you know the male characters as well they're all on a heroine's journey um, I also mm. like uh, Lyra Balacqua from the His Dark Material series by Philip Pullman um, going from the books here but all the way through those books Lyra who is not always the most likeable character in some ways is getting people to work together she's she's going through and forming friendships and connections and and even enemies and getting everybody to kind of work together to this one end. So um, that one really worked to me as well. Obviously, I've enjoyed Six mm. of Crows and various other things as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so the heroine's journey in her own work. Um, I'm just going to come straight out and say that I think I've, for, for all the, this time I've been writing and published, I've been writing the heroine's journey for pretty much all of it without necessarily calling it the heroine's journey. <laughs> Um, there's one point in Unveiled where it seems like Em's going off on a hero's journey by herself, but actually she's got everybody else on the other side of the veil sort of waiting on, on on her command to actually do something so that she can do the final showdown. Yeah, it's she. she's relying on them and she has to rely on them. Um so I think I think with M it it feels like there's a decent mix there because there I think there are elements of the hero's journey but it's still at its core as a heroine's journey. Yeah, I mean her big thing through the series is that she learns that she needs to ask for help, and that yeah it's yeah. fine to be self reliant but actually other people are, are also good kind of thing. Um, complete. I mean I've gone even more unashamedly into it with Harker and Blackthorn in the sense of. This is very much a team endeavour, and whenever anybody tries to go off on, on their own to, to defeat anything or do something heroic and noble and sacrificial, um, the others sort of rock up and say, what the fuck are you doing? So, <laughs> I can't go into detail. But, um, <laughs> what the hell is this? <laughs> Just slap them down. Stop that. <laughs> about this. And, and obviously, the King's Night. Um, Gregory is on a heroine's journey through the entirety of the King's Night. I love that Gregory is on is a is a heroine trying to be on a hero's journey who just keeps falling deeper into a heroine's journey. I don't need anyone. I don't care about anyone except myself. Well, sod it, you're coming with me. I suppose I'm adopting you as well. I don't like you. I want this to be clear. <laughs> Sorry, it it reminds me. Obviously, I I got my dad to read 
um, I say that like I forced him, <laughs> but I, I suggested um, the, the books to him, and he's been reading them. And I and I was like, "What do you think of these characters? What do you think of these characters?" Particularly, I was like, "What do you think of Ghent and stuff like that?" And he's just like, "I don't like him. I've never liked him." And I was like, "Oh, really? When he's introduced, he's like, no, Gregory is too trusting." <laughs> Well, if that's right, in fairness. (laughs) Um, And obviously I started this episode by saying that Madeline writes the heroine's journey, she just hasn't been calling it that as well. (laughs) I do, I definitely do. I mean, you can see it in in the Hamartia cycle where the whole thing is Rufus tries to go off on his own um, at the end of book one. He's like, I can do this on my own. <laughs> he cannot. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't go so well for him. <laughs> it, it definitely doesn't go well at all. And ultimately, you know, by Rufus is on the ultimate heroine's journey because he starts off really isolating himself. And Jonathan was also on a heroine's journey, which ends kind of on a, a hero's journey for him uh, because he does leave everybody behind to make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, Rufus is now doing the opposite. He's he's putting things to the side. He's decided to end the perpetual cycle in order to get people to all team up together. Um, and the first step is something amazing, which is that he's actually got the Catchy on his side now. Bearing in mind that the Magi and the Catchy have had an incredibly long rivalry between them because Magi keep killing Catchy and then wearing their skins. Which is, you know, not a great start for a friendship. But but Rufus has managed that and he's going to continue sort of pulling people together because he knows that he needs them in order to succeed. Um, the You're about to read... Um, Jules is about to read book two of the Kestrel Saga, which I finished last night. Um, which I'm very pleased about. Um, and the thing is, Jill sent me this this list of sort of the heroine's journey, and I was like, do, 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 do. oh my god, this is book two. This is book two. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what's happening. And the thing is, I haven't even read book two yet. I've, I've literally just loaded up to my Kindle, and I'm like, we could talk about the heroine's journey today. And Madeline's like, oh, I'm not sure what that is. I'm like, mm, I'm willing to bet you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what that is. Yes, you do. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's definitely something that I've used. I still love the hero's journey, um, but I think unconsciously, again, I was approaching the hero's journey less. Or I was following more of the monomyth than um, the, the the sort of the diluted hero's journey. Uh, that makes it sound like I'm being really superior, like, ooh, la-di-da. No, that's not it at all. It's just that my introduction to the hero's journey was basically through Campbell. So I really follow Campbell's ideas. So I was actually writing heroine's journey when I thought I was writing a hero's journey a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, I it, I think in one of the earlier drafts of the first Kestrel book I read, it was a bit more like mm. hero's journey and then it got progressively more heroine's journey like as, as I read subsequent yeah. drafts. So. Yeah, but I think book one is, is much more of a hero's journey because it kind of needed to be. Um, Kestrel does end up on her own at the end 
of the book. She's kind of lost everybody else. She's got to make that final step on her own. And that was something she needed to do. But book two is definitely... I was really worried because I was like, are people going to find this really boring? Because Kestrel is outsourcing a lot. (laughs) She's like, I cannot deal with that. But you know who can? Not me. (laughs) Nope, that's all just smart. That's that's being clever. (laughs) So, yeah. Anyway, um, we have reached the end of our episode, and would you look at that? We have barely run over. Good for us. <laughs> yeah, actually, this is pretty good going for us. We will, we're going to try, particularly with the writing episodes, to be more concise because you're all intelligent people. You've been listening to us for a while, probably, and we think you can probably take what we say, go and find out your own and your own stuff, and develop your own ideas and things. So we're going to try not to overrun as much as we have been. Yeah. And when required, we can always split things up into two episodes, um, if needs be. Before we go, it is, of course, time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you have got one for us with a very disturbing title. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I would like to recommend Behind Her Eyes, which is a psychological supernatural thriller you will find on Netflix. It's... It's a one-off season, it's a six-parter, so this is sort of the perfect thing to kind of binge over a couple of days. And yeah, I will. It, it start, you don't really see the supernatural side of it until sort of towards the end of episode three, so don't go in expecting mm. ghosts and things from, from the get-go, that's not what you get. It, mm. It's going from the theory that um, there's a strange, there's a lot of strangeness between, in the relationship between a psychiatrist and his wife, Um, the psychiatrist is new to the area under slightly mysterious circumstances and the woman who acts as a secretary who is a divorced single mother is and has Mm -hmm. some sort of sleeping issues is kind of drawn to him and he's drawn to her and there's there's some very strange stuff going on so it starts off being a bit like a family drama and you're kind of like oh this isn't good there's there's some you know they're not acting as as decent adults here but i think if you can get past that bit um it does a really good job of playing with your sympathies in terms of who are you rooting for and then it takes you down some very very dark strange paths so (laughs) it's a bit of it kind of messes with your head a little bit um i did really really enjoy it it didn't I will say it didn't end how I personally wanted it to end, but it ended in a way that was absolutely fitting for the way it had set up the story. It's um okay. It, it's got its spooky <laughs> moments. So, ooh, okay. Thank you very much for that recommendation. As always, guys, we love to hear from you, so do get in touch. What do you think about the heroine's journey? What do you think about the hero's journey? Are there any examples which really work for you, or do you feel you're more inclined to one or the other? Let us know. Remember, you can get in contact with us via our Twitter, our Tumblr, or our Facebook, both individually and as Dissecting Dragons. For now, we'll say thanks very much for listening, stay safe, And we'll catch you guys next week. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.